Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And perhaps this is your first episode, if you found us via Anna's brilliant quote in the New York Times. (laughs) If so... I said other things also. (laughs) If so, welcome. Stay a while. You won't find any preserved Neanderthals here, folks. You really don't find any (laughs) preserved Neanderthal tongues, says noted Neanderthal expert. Doctor, actually. Okay, they gave me a degree. (laughs) Um, But we do have some patrons to shout out. We've got Kate, we've got Catherine, and we've got Daniel. Thank you so much to all of you. We honestly, literally, truly could not do it without your support. And speaking of those without whom we could not do it, we got to thank listener Glenn once again for reaching out to us late last year for some tips on Malagasy pronunciation and entry points for learning about the world's second largest island country. That's right. It's time for some March Madagascarness. Let's do it. I liked it. I liked it. Fair use. If you listen to last week's episode about Arthurian legend, you probably already know that I don't know lots of things. But I did know Maybe how to say I mean there's I did know how to say tentagel. Tentagel. Oh, I did want to throw in a a little <laughs> correction about that. Cause I, with supreme confidence, said Tintagel. It is not Tintagel. It's according to a listener on the Twitter. Tintagel. Tintagel. Yeah. So thank you to Jen and Judy's dirty shovel on Twitter. So in that same spirit of normalizing, not knowing, but being willing to learn things. Heck yeah. Let me share some very quick points about Madagascar, starting with its name. So I found no primary sources to back this up. So it could just be like a folk etymology, but the place name Madagascar is thought to be the doing of Marco Polo back in the 13th century CE. So Noodles and Madagascar, his (laughs) contributions. um, In his memoirs, he mentioned Madagascar, which is thought to be a corrupted transliteration of the name Mogadishu, the Somali port with which Polo had confused the island. (laughs) There's a couple of steps of getting stuff wrong there. Yeah, I know. So um, the name picked up among European travelers who soon enough were itching to colonize everyone. So prior to Marco Polo's clerical error, no one who lived there had a name for the entire island in the various dialects of Malagasy, the language. Huh. Okay. Um, So there were, I mean, there were plenty of place names, but there wasn't a like, and this is what we call this landmass that we are all on. Uh, Yeah. Okay. Just clarify. So English sources used to, it seemed to use both Madagascan and Malagasy. 
Um, and lest I mistakenly do the equivalent of using Oriental to describe both a rug and a person, I looked Ooh. into it. And to, and to quote Andrea Maranto Ravelson in The Conversation, um, who says, quote, we concluded from our findings that the correct term to use is Malagasy and that it should be used to refer to the people, the culture and other things from Madagascar. And so Malagasy, we shall use. We shall. Uh, Madagascar was well known to other polities that traversed the Indian Ocean and was part of maritime trade networks with the Arabian Peninsula um, and East Africa by the 10th century CE. By the end of the 15th century, the Europeans were poking around with the Portuguese, the Dutch, the English, and the French, all vying for influence among the various kingdoms throughout the island. Over the next couple hundred years, piracy became more prevalent in the Indian Ocean, and some kingdoms in Madagascar benefited from it in direct and indirect ways. Um, also during this time, the intercontinental slave trade had intensified, and some kingdoms on the island capitalized on the large-scale trafficking of enslaved people uh, for neighboring areas as well as for the Western Hemisphere. Um, and so I don't want to give the impression that the entire island was culturally or politically homogenous, uh, but for several kingdoms, life was highly stratified and a caste system was in place that reinforced inequities between elites and the masses. And that sort of political and social stratification um, lent itself well, unfortunately, to um, the, the sale of enslaved people. Also, I want to take a quick pause <laughs> to recognize. I, I, so okay. I'm not laughing no. at anything having to do with enslaved people. No, all of that Ooh. is very serious and are yes. things that will, um, will, are sort of like through lines to some of the other things we'll talk in this episode. But for mm -hmm. now, I just want to take a pause here at the beginning <laughs> sidebar. to share something that I found that was amazing. Um, and so this is the longest title I have ever seen for anything. I'm like not going to... from an era when long and mostly the whole story of the book titles yeah, so are common, but this I'm is... Not, I'm not going to tell you anything about it. I'm not going to read nope, from it. you don't need to. I'm not going to cite it. I'm just going to let you know that in 1750, a man named Robert Drury wrote the following book. Author of The Pleasant and Surprising Adventures of Mr. Robert Drury During His 15 Years Captivity on the Island of Madagascar Containing 1. His Voyage to and Short Stay at the East Indies 2. An Account of the Shipwreck of the De Grave on the Island of Madagascar the murder of Captain Young and his ship's company, except Admirable, Admiral Bimbo's son and some others who made their escape. Three, his captivity, hard usage, marriage, and wonderful variety of fortune. Four, his travels thorough the island and description of its situation, product, manufacturers, commodities, etc. Five, the nature of the people, their customs, wars, religion, and policy as also the conferences between some of their chiefs and the author concerning the Christian and their religion. Six, his redemption from thence by Captain Mackett, late commander of the Prince of Wales in the Honorable East India Company service, his arrival in England, the second voyage thither. Seven, a vocabulary of the Madagascar language. The whole is a faithful narrative matter of fact, interspersed with a variety of amazing incidents and illustrated with the sheet map of Madagascar and other cuts, first written by himself and now carefully revised in the corrected from the original copy with improvements 
You know, if you are hesitant to make the investment and purchase this book, the title tells you what you need to know. <laughs> oh, cheers uh, to you, Robert Drury. Uh, 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 okay, so um, back to Madagascar. Yes, let's. Um, at the end of the 18th century, one kingdom, Imerina, uh, which was rooted in the Central Highlands, um, which the Central Highlands is also where the current capital is, just sort of okay. geographically. Um, Thank you. So Imerina was gaining traction towards consolidation of power on the island. We mentioned this particular kingdom in our episode on ordeals, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, With and Queen that's Renabellana. what um, okay. inspired Glenn to write us. Yes. Um, and so, Thanks, Glenn. <laughs> so I'm going to now quote from the U.S. Federal Research Service's Country Guide for Madagascar. Um, it's, it's a disappointingly <laughs> short title. <laughs> well, actually, I think the title of it was like Three Island Countries or something. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Okay. Um, quote, the location of the marina in the central highlands afforded them some protection from the ravages of warfare that recurred among the coastal kingdoms. The distinction, recognized both locally and internationally, between the central highlanders, the marina, and the cotier, inhabitants of the coastal areas, okay, that's what that means, yep. um, would soon exert a major impact on Madagascar's political system. Organized like the coastal kingdoms in a hierarchy of nobles, commoners, and slaves, the marina developed a unique political institution known as the Fokonolona, a village council. Through the Fokonolona, village elders and other local notables were able to enact regulations and exert a measure of local control in such matters as public works and security. So after his, so this is like a little bit of, a little bit of history of 19th century Madagascar. After his father's reign strengthened control over the highlands, King Radama I ascended to the throne in 1810 and took advantage of the relationships with both the French and the British, using their support, boink, to expand, support. <laughs> to expand the borders of Imerina. So sort of like played them off of each other. By Radama the first death in 1828, most of the island was under marina control, and leaps had been taken towards modernization, which modernization in this sense went, took the form of missionary schools, a writing system for Malagasy, and a rise of literacy rates, a not very well adhered to treaty with the British in which they abolished the slave trade, and a whole lot of converts to Christianity. So Radama I was succeeded by his wife, Queen Ranavalona I, um, who is who we talked about in we sure did. our deals episode. So her reign was, to quote the country guide, essentially reactionary, reflecting her distrust of foreign influence. Under the oligarchy that ruled in her name, rivals were slain, numerous Protestant converts were persecuted and killed, and many Europeans fled the island. The ruling elite held all the land and monopolized commerce, except for the handful of Europeans allowed to deal in cattle, rice, and other commodities. Remunerations to the queen provided the French traders a supply of slaves and a monopoly in the slave trade. Enjoying particular favor owing to his remarkable accomplishments was French artisan Jean Laborde, who established at uh, Montessoa near Antananarivo, a manufacturing complex and agricultural research station where he manufactured commodities ranging from silk to soap, 
to guns, tools, and cement. One-stop shop. Yeah. So um, it makes sense that there would be sort of like a, a swinging pendulum becoming more friendly with, with European powers and then pulling away when you see what's Reacting happening to that. Yeah. When you see what's happening. And so where you feel that <laughs> yeah. you're being taken advantage of, and then you're looking to other, other countries. Polities. Uh, yeah. Um, and so during her successor, Radama the second, the pen- pendulum swung again towards modernization and cordial relations yeah. with Western nations, particularly France. So Radama II made a treaty of perpetual friendship with France. Um, <laughs> but his brief rule ended with his assassination by a group of Ooh. nobles alarmed by his pro-French stance. Oh, that backfired. <laughs> yeah. Um, so he was succeeded by his widow, who ruled until 1868, uh, during which time she annulled the treaty with France and the charter of Laborde's company. So okay. France. There goes the pension canceled. the other way. Um, Franceled. No? Nah, anything? no. I don't okay. know that's anything. So it was at the end of Radama II's reign and through his wife's rule that the French had amplified their incursions into Madagascar. So perpetual friendship? No. No. Um, no. <laughs> um, so the British recognized the French protectorate um, in 1890. So the British... We're said, like, okay, you can have Madagascar. The, the British were like, Madagascar is a French protectorate. It's French now. Okay. Uh, Madagascar didn't agree that it was a French protectorate. Imagine. Um, so, the, <laughs> so six years later, the French annexed Madagascar and declared the island a colony the following year, uh, which dissolved the Marina monarchy and sent the royal family into exile on Réunion and uh, in Algeria. And a resistance campaign raged for another two years. So Madagascar really didn't want to be French. I can't imagine why when you look at what happened two years later. Yeah. Well, just, yeah. So um, we'll revisit the kingdom of Imerina, as well as some of the lasting effects of colonialism later on towards the end of the episode. But for now, let's talk about another period of colonization on Madagascar. Or as our friend up 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 top called it, Madagascar. <laughs> Robert Jury. Let's let's go throw this. That's how you spell through T H O R O W. Yeah. So this is much much farther back in time. Uh, the original colonization of Madagascar, as in, when did people get there? So. For a long time, it was commonly accepted that Madagascar was only colonized relatively recently, perhaps two thousand years ago. In 2019, a team led by Christina Douglas, whose work we'll be citing a few times throughout this episode, decided to reassess the evidence behind this timeline. And so I'm going to read to you from an article on fizz.org, which says, quote, To determine the timeline of human settlement, the researchers used statistical models to rank the dates using specific criteria, including whether the dated samples were clearly associated with human activities. Yep, that's important, and whether the samples came from long or short-lived species so that both the reliability and precision of radiocarbon dates could be evaluated. This method of chronometric hygiene, which is a term I I don't think I like, but I appreciate the concept, had never been done for Madagascar. And so Douglas said, quote, we looked at the type of material to see whether or not there was built-in error based on the type of material. 
redundant. We took all of those criteria that we called quality control for those dates, and we fed that into a system where we ranked the dates to know which dates are the most reliable based on our criteria and which are the least reliable. Ah, gets quoted in the New York Times one time. Suddenly. (laughs) Suddenly I judge everyone else's quotes. Look, you just don't find many Neanderthal tongues. (laughs) Love to dunk on myself. What Douglas and her team suggest in their paper is that the 11,000-year estimate of human presence is reliable. Despite the reliability of this early arrival estimate, it's still unclear whether the evidence from 11,000 years ago is from permanent human settlements or if humans just visited the island temporarily. And Douglas said, quote, somebody could have floated over to Madagascar by accident and left some remains. You know, I meant to look up how far it was from mainland Africa to Madagascar. I have a little bit of insight into that later. Great. Great. I look forward to learning about that. The team's paper also supports current evidence that cities started to emerge on Madagascar about 1,000 years ago. Douglas said that confirming the timeline of human settlement is important for historical reasons, but it also has critical meaning for today's changing world. She said, quote, The bigger context of why this matters is because this island, with some of the world's greatest biodiversity hotspots, is going through significant environmental change today and within the last 2,000 years. A huge number of animals went extinct on the island about 1,000 years ago. Pygmy hippos, giant elephant birds, man-sized lemurs, and giant tortoises. What? (laughs) Douglas said it is important for understanding today's environmental challenges to determine if these animals went extinct rapidly after a short coexistence with newly arrived people, seen that before, or if the extinctions were a more complex, longer-term process involving climate change and human activity. And Douglas said, quote, if people arrived 1,500 years ago, then within 500 years, all of these animals go extinct and all of these changes happen. If people arrived 11,000 years ago, people have been coexisting with these environments for a much longer time. So the changes we see may be less abrupt or may have been caused by a significant shift in how people were using the landscape, end quote. Douglas added that human presence should not be used as the only indication of whether an environment is going to change. It's not always our fault. Usually. Human activity should be considered within a constellation of human environment climate dynamics. And finally, she said, quote, If people were there 11,000 years ago and practicing a certain kind of subsistence, that might be very different from 1,000 years ago when Madagascar is swept into booming Indian Ocean trade networks and people start building ports and cities. That is when we start to see the extinctions happen. End quote. Cities. Dun, dun. Is that that our agriculture ruins everything? (laughs) So if you've ever moved into a new apartment or house and then spent months making it feel like home, then you have low-key experienced something called the Allee effect. I think it might be Allie. Is it Allie? I mean, there's no accent, and I think it might be Allie. Allie. It doesn't mean... Allee. Tintagel. The having gone effect. Um, (laughs) Je suis Allee. Okay. So the Allie effect setting me up for this again so um this is more applicable to human colonization of new environments than putting up shelves for your succulents but it is something that definitely happened on madagascar the first part not the last part not the shelves no um so from a 2020 futurity report on a study that used a machine learning algorithm to scour through remote sensing data such as satellite imagery to look for the signs of human settlements 
would you like me to have we talked about machine learning to yet no just briefly it's a computer program that learns as you feed it information so you can say like here is this database of information for you to comb through look for this and this and this and then you can gradually refine or increase those criteria as you as you want to depending on what you're looking for and the computer will sort of learn and refine its its search and so you can feed it information and it spits out certain output that's a very vague explanation but it's it's the basic okay okay thing and it's that and it's something that can it like it gets smarter about like what comes along with certain things and be like yeah exactly and it's the same kind of thing that learns what ads to feed you based on your google search history cool it's the same idea yeah okay (laughs) yeah only this one's this one's an archaeologist okay um so uh christina douglas hello again Hello. Uh, I told you we'd be we'd be citing her work a couple times, and this was completely accidentally. It wasn't like I went on a weird like you may also like thing, or just like that I googled her. I found. Oh, I just thought it was that she was the only person doing this research. She's not the only person. Um, there are a couple other people that I kept finding. Okay, <laughs> but well. there aren't. But also, there aren't many people who, um, who work and publish extensively in English. Ah, uh, okay, okay. Okay. There's a lot of Good stuff in Malagasy and there's a lot of stuff in French. Okay. Uh, Decor. Uh, so she is an assistant professor of anthropology at Penn State. And uh, she said, quote, we have a baseline assumption that people start in the most preferable areas with access to the best resources. And as that degrades and populations expand, they'll move to less suitable areas. We actually found some evidence that there was a concentration in the medium suitability areas, which might be evidence of what ecologists and anthropologists refer to as an allié effect. (laughs) Although this is something that we have still to confirm, end quote. So. Allie, it's the, Allie. Let's 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 the, con, let's commit to Allie, and I take responsibility okay. if we're wrong. The Allie effect indicates that humans who live in these medium resource-rich areas may use various agricultural and land modification techniques to improve their surroundings. Um, and uh, Professor Douglas says, "Quote: Over time, people are actually creating their landscape. They're not degrading it necessarily. They're creating a landscape that is preferable for people." Uh, And so the effects also show the importance of social ties and social networks, according to the researchers. Um, And co-author Dylan Davis says, quote, alley effects can also indicate that closely knit social ties kept communities together. So when areas became overcrowded, large groups would resettle in new places. This means that in addition to creating the landscapes they lived on, ancient peoples were likely engaged in closely tied kinship and social networks, end quote. In addition to finding evidence for the alley effect, Douglas said that the team also found that machine learning tools are uniquely suited to help scientists study Madagascar, which is the fourth largest island in the world and the center of perplexing archaeological controversies. Anna. I have raised my hand because I looked up the alley effect and it's named after a man named Warder Clyde Alley, who was an American ecologist. So I'm going to err on the side of Alley rather than L.A. Okay. I thought you were going to take issue with this being the fourth largest island, but the second largest island nation. You know, I don't know enough about geography to quibble with it that. It is both of those things. That's fine. I just... They're not mutually I just, exclusive. I just want to make sure that nobody comes for me on that. Like, I checked. No, um, no. I just wanted to check that I was right. 
So the, Great. now we're both right and we can move on. Awesome. Madagascar's size and rugged terrain make archaeological investigations expensive and time-consuming. Douglas said, quote, Archaeologists have been working on Madagascar for the past 50 or 60 years, and yet we have little coverage overall of this very large island in terms of sites that have been visited, regions that have been explored archaeologically. We estimate that about 75% of the island has not been explored archaeologically. Counter that with all these burning questions that have stimulated debate and have not been easy to answer. It's not surprising that we're getting stumped on some of these big questions, end quote. Yeah. The researcher's machine learning algorithm, however, can examine satellite imagery from free sources to identify areas where human habitation is most probable. These sites might not look much different to human archaeologists who look at the terrain of photographs, says Douglas, but by focusing their efforts on high probability sites identified by the algorithm, anthropologists could concentrate their time, money, and effort. Using this method, the team was able to systematically scan over 20 square miles of land per hour, which is which exponentially increased the rate of survey and discovery of archaeological deposits when compared to traditional ground-based methods. Yeah, if you're in the middle of a super dense forest, traditional ground-based methods are like two feet an hour. Yeah. So uh, Douglas says the algorithm might be able to help archaeologists and anthropologists tackle even bigger, in fact, continent-sized challenges. For example, the algorithm could help studies of Africa, which is a massive continent with rugged terrain and, as the cradle of human civilization, the center of important anthropological questions and debates. Well, certainly the cradle of human evolution. Yeah. The use of civilization there is odd, but okay, sure. The researchers used freely downloadable satellite imagery from the European Space Agency's satellite. The resolution of the imagery is not refined enough to let humans detect signs of ancient human civilization, Douglas says, but the resolution is adequate for a predictive algorithm. The team trained the algorithm using the best <laughs> theoretical assumptions on how people settle areas. Sit, stay, analyze. The algorithm <laughs> compares these theoretical assumptions with the current landscape to select high, medium, or low probability areas of evidence of human inhabitation. The research is ongoing, so hopefully the team will be able to gradually get a higher resolution of imagery to get a better sense of how people interacted with their environment on Madagascar. Neat. And with that, let's feed that algorithm. <laughs> it's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Cultura when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. 
We're back, and so we've been talking about people on the island of Madagascar this whole time. Where'd they come from? And so to address that question, we are looking at an article that was published in PNAS, PNAS, uh, that was published in 2017 and titled Genomic Landscape of Human Diversity Across Madagascar. It went on for a further three pages of title, but no, I'm kidding. No. Only Robert Drury yeah. has that. No, it's like three pages of co-authors. Well, genomic studies are always yeah. No. <laughs> I have engaged my translate that science filter for a lot of this. There is some direct quoting from the article, but a lot of it is sort of uh, me talking. So as with any place where people are, the question of who got there first is a hotly debated issue. It's especially heated in Madagascar because ancestors are fundamental to Malagasy society. So understanding where those ancestors came from, or conversely, who is related to the first people on Madagascar, can have a lot of societal impact. So directly quoted from the article, for instance, whether the Malagasy are of mainly African or Asian ancestry is still vigorously debated. Along with African and Austronesian connections, contributions from Arabic, Indian, Papuan, and or Jewish populations have been suggested for a long time, as have the existence and heritage of the legendary first settlers of Madagascar, namely hunter-gatherers called variously Vazimba, Kimosi, or Gola, end quote. Um, so I tried looking into the Vazimba. And that's something that was, um, it was in French. It was all in French. Oh, okay. And um, so it was, it was like too challenging for me to like get, to feel like I was actually getting anything out of that I would feel comfortable sharing with another person. Right. Okay. But um, the Vazimba might only be mythical. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. So it's, um, there isn't a, a real understanding of like who they were because they, they, um, it's, it's just, it's like a very interesting thing that is like tied to sort of like the deep past and relationship to sort of like ancestral spaces. Does and, it have to do with sort of legitimacy and things like that? Like no. ties to the Vizimba? No? no. Okay. Not really. Just. I think it was like the sort of like in the earliest periods of like the Marina Kingdom, they like mm -hmm. battled the Vazimba. And so it's just like something okay. that um, is Some shadowy population. Yeah. And like it, maybe it's a maybe it means like multiple things. Like maybe it's sure. like a first settlers, but also people that are just mythical. Like it could be like all of those things or none of those things. But it's like very interesting. And if it anybody is, knows yeah. anything about that, Glenn? Anything? I don't know if Glenn would know anything about that. Okay. Well, but maybe he does. Maybe Glenn the does. The podcast at gmail.com. We would love Glenn to Glenn has learn. given us so much. <laughs> I know. Please don't feel obligated to give us any more. So the research team, and actually this is going to get into the idea of um, the depth of time related to mm -hmm. the ancestry of people on Madagascar, which I thought this was a really interesting Point. So, the research team sampled from 257 villages across the island, multiple people in each village, and they collected data on genetic diversity based on maternal mitochondrial DNA. We've talked about that before. Check out our DNA episode for that. Uh, paternal Y chromosome, specifically genes within the Y chromosome, which is only passed down through the paternal line, and genome-wide SNP data. What? Well, exactly. <laughs> Single nucleotide polymorphisms, which are abbreviated SNP and pronounced SNP. 
Not snips. <laughs> snips. They are the most common type of genetic variation among people. Each SNP represents a difference in a single DNA building block called a nucleotide. So that's one of those uh, pairs of nitrogen bases, right? Uh So for example, a SNP may replace the nucleotide cytosine, C, with the nucleotide thiamine in a certain stretch of DNA. So the genetic instructions would sort of say the same, but it would be the equivalent of, say, spelling gray with an E rather than an A. So it sort of means the same thing, but the end result is slightly different. If that makes sense. Okay. So my understanding is that because these differences can be passed down through generations, you can track them to trace family lines. So using all of these different forms of DNA information, what did the researchers find? What did they find, Anna? The present Malagasy. The present Malagasy population shares recent common ancestors with Bantu and Austronesian populations now living 8,000 kilometers apart. The distribution, you know, it's far. The distribution of African and Asian ancestry across the island reveals that the admixture, so intermating, was sex biased. Hold on to that. And happened not in the way that you are sex biased. No! So hold hold on to the thought. I'm going to explain sex bias, but pause. Uh, And this admixture happened heterogeneously across Madagascar, suggesting independent colonization of Madagascar from African and Asian populations. Okay. What is sex biased distribution? Basically, it is differential marrying in or at least joining in two populations by males and females in different proportions. So maternal African lineages are present mostly in the north of the island and are even in the majority in the extreme north of Madagascar, whereas maternal lineages from Asia are in higher frequency in the center and south of the island. In contrast, Asian paternal lineages are much lower in frequency in general, reaching only 30% in the center, and African paternal lineages are present mostly on the coast and in the north of Madagascar. The distribution of ancestral components based on genome-wide data indicates that people in the highlands in the center of the island have mostly Asian ancestry, whereas and it's greater than 65% of those people, mm. whereas people from the coastal regions have higher African ancestry. So again, mm. higher than 65% of the population. So the study shows a really strong correlation between geography and genomic diversity across Madagascar. And the the authors of the study go on to say, to be sure, the genetic groups we identified are based on arbitrary criteria, as is any discussion of sort of race and heritage and ancestry. And there is no method for identifying the true number of genetic groups. However, the distributions of the 10 genetic groups we analyzed are strongly influenced by geography, suggesting that they reflect, in some sense, the past demographic history of the Malagasy. Interestingly, many of these genetic groups overlap populations presented in the various controversial ethnographic descriptions made by explorers and other scholars in the 20th century. Just because they do doesn't mean they're right. And those descriptions may, in turn, reflect the influence of ancient kingdoms across Madagascar. In agreement, our study attests that genetic structure is young. Sorry. In agreement, our study attests that the genetic structure is young and not necessarily due to the result of different population sources. So in conclusion, sort of a 
translate that science wrap up. It seems like a lot of different incursions from Asia and Africa and different different source populations happened over the course of the early peopling of Madagascar with males and females of African or Asian descent joining populations in different parts of the island. But also Lots of different migrations and admixtures have happened since the first people got to the island. So actually, the current genomic blueprint of the population of Madagascar might not and actually probably doesn't reflect much about what it looked like when it was first colonized. So I'm not really sure how you know anyone invested in the idea of ancestry or anyone sort of 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 Malagasy descent who to whom ancestry is very important. I'm not sure how how they would interpret a study like this. Um, or how, how that would sort of inform their understanding of their own heritage. But um, it's an interesting contribution to, uh, yeah, to, yeah, to that, just to understanding um, how people got there. And I guess the, the takeaway is we really don't know. Yeah. And, and it's like, my understanding is that it's really only been in the past few years that um, anyone has gotten any archeological evidence of, the like peopling of of Madagascar and and that was reflected in the professor Douglas's writing just sort of like whether it was a thousand years ago or eleven thousand years ago like we're just sort of we we as if I'm on the research team they (laughs) are just starting to one time in the New York Times they're really just starting to get that information yeah and so yeah tb tbd um and so before that genetic study uh, came out, it was already known that there were linguistic similarities between Malagasy and other Austronesian languages. So they figured that they they came from there. And there also exists cultural and architectural similarities between Southeast Asia and mm-hmm. um, like in like Borneo and like its environs in, in what is now Indonesia. And Madagascar. But in 2016, excavations from 18 different ancient settlements on Madagascar, the coast of Kenya and Tanzania, and islands including Pemba and Zanzibar, and the Comoros. You familiar with Comoros? The, the nation of Com- Comoros? No. Uh, Comoros is the only member of the Arab League that is completely in the Southern Hemisphere. Where is it exactly? The ocean. Okay. It's in the Indian Ocean. (laughs) It's, it's, um, Ooh, I think it might be between, I feel like it might be between Madagascar, like North of Madagascar, between Madagascar and the African mainland. I think that's Comoros. Um, Okay. But it is. Sorry. I didn't mean to spring that on you. I just, it's, it is a truly never heard of it. It is a small island nation in the Indian Ocean um, that you're going to hear about a couple of times in the next few minutes. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you. So, um, so this study, so this archaeological um, study, uh, produced charred grains of rice and mung beans, which provided I the love f- charred grains. Uh, and these these rices and mung beanses provided the first <laughs> archaeological data tying Madagascar to Southeast Asia. So right. those crops weren't present on the mainland of Africa until around the 11th century CE. But in the sites on Madagascar and Comoros, they're dated to the 8th to 10th century CE. So, so Southeast Asia got to Madagascar before, before getting to Africa. Getting to. Interesting. Yeah. And um, so. I guess it is on the way. Or is it? We'll see. 
getting okay. to this. You keep asking about like sort of getting her. I'm so sorry. I got a whole section I'm, on this. <laughs> I have an inquisitive mind. Um, so um, the abstract for the paper, which I'll have in the show notes, the paper that resulted from this is fo- as follows. The Austronesian settlement of the remote island of Madagascar remains one of the great puzzles of Indo-Pacific prehistory. Although linguistic, ethnographic, and genetic evidence points clearly toward to a colonization of Madagascar by Austronesian language-speaking people from island Southeast Asia, decades of archaeological research have failed to locate evidence for a Southeast Asian signature in the island's early material record. Here, we present new archaeobotanical data that show that Southeast Asian settlers brought Asian crops with them when they settled in Africa. These crops provide the first, to our knowledge, reliable archaeological window into the Southeastern Asian colonization of Madagascar. They additionally suggest that initial Southeast Asian settlement in Africa was not limited to Madagascar, but also extended to the Comoros. Archaeobotanical data may support a model of indirect Austronesian colonization of Madagascar from the Comoros and or elsewhere in Eastern Africa. Go on. Yeah, and so... um, thinking about how did they get there like b- beyond just like boats but like uh, that's what i was yeah. gonna be a jerk and no, just be like, like i know so the the idea the, the idea is that um the boats that were used are called outrigger canoes oh and, yeah and yeah. that they would have made it from island southeast asia to uh, Madagascar, so across the Indian Ocean, um, and so I and we, we know that they can travel. Those boats can travel vast distances. Yeah, very sort of ocean worthy. <laughs> yes, they are ocean worthy, and so I um, wanted to find out a little bit more about like how exactly, like what routes, like from a I I west. <sighs> yep. And so this is pulled from a chapter entitled The Austronesian Expansion and the First Malagasy Cultures. And this is in the book Worlds of the Indian Ocean. Is that that Cambridge Press? That's the one I had you sent. So if you can't access this, but you want to know more, hit us up. And yep. We, really, we will. We can yep. share the PDF. Um, yep. Because this one is, is you have to have an institutional Behind access. Paywall. Otherwise. Yeah. Yep. So the migrations of Austronesians to the Western Indian Ocean did not come about by accident. <laughs> um, and so, so, so I'm now quoting this, this, this chapter. Um, These migrations did not come about by accident, but were based on commercial strategies embedded in evolving exchange networks throughout the Indian Ocean. I mean, they wanted to get to a place. It is, it is likely that the Austronesians tried to take advantage of the demand from the West and also from the East, transporting coveted products, above all spices, along mm. routes that bypassed India and allowed them to reach East Africa directly. It may be within this context that Austronesians later settled in the Comoros and Madagascar. These pre-Malagasy Austronesians were probably different from the first Austronesian migrants of the East African coast, however, and the pre-Malagasy may have migrated for political reasons. So I thought that that's a really important thing because like, I, I think that some people might um, like through, you know, just through like not knowing and maybe like, implicit biases might think that people arrive places like by accident or like just to like explore or that they're this was an economic decision that they're trying to like leave a place and so you know we're running out of coconuts we got to go somewhere else for more coconuts and like having that kind of very simple (laughs) approach but like this is like actually a like a complex 
international trade system. And you can cut out the middleman, the middleman being the Indian subcontinent. And right. if and you that just, would that would sort of jack up the prices on whatever goods you're trying well, to Well, it would it would increase your profits. Wouldn't necessarily to jack cut up. Cut out the middleman. Yeah. No, no, no. I'm saying I'm saying that using a middleman tends to reduce profit and jack up the price for yeah. the consumer. So, so yeah. So this is like direct direct marketing here. So um, there, and so this chapter also lays out some of the various routes from Southeast Asia to the Western Indian Ocean, uh, which I find very interesting and will answer a question that you had up at the top of the episode. Thank so, you. A first route crossed the Bay of Bengal. So sailing through the boreal winter with a stopover in South India and Sri Lanka. This route might either then follow the coasts using what has been called the Sabaean Lane between hey, India and Africa. I know. Saba. Kingdom of Saba. Yep. I retain information from our Dirt After Dark episodes. <laughs> um, or it could continue directly to East Africa um, and or the Comoros or Northern Madagascar stopping over in the Maldives. So this is a this is a route. I need to look at a map. You want to get a globe out? Um, I just need a map next to me when we're recording because I, embarrassingly, I know what the Maldives are. I just don't know where they are. I'm going to look at just there in the end. I'm going to look at a map later. Yep. Um, okay. So surface currents and winds facilitated journeys from India or Sri Lanka to East Africa in February to March with the Northeast monsoon and from Africa to India or Sri Lanka in August to September with the Southwest monsoon. Um, and so in June or July, you don't do that because it's dangerous. And so oh, thank you. departures from the East African coast also occurred in April and May before the rise of the Southwest monsoon. So timing is really, so critical. timing is important. So you get to make these trips when like these major weather systems are in play so that you can catch the, Zoom. catch the winds. Yeah. Um, so a second route went to the Maldives and on to East Africa the Comoros and Madagascar from Sumatra, which was favored by the North Equatorial Current. So this is a um, this is in February to March. Also, is, does that mean that the North Equatorial Current is in effect from February to March, or is that weather related instead? Because usually currents are not seasonal, right? I think that this can be. This is also affected by how you're going to get back. Oh, fair point. Yep. Okay. Um, and so a third route went directly to the Comoros and Madagascar via the Chagos from Java and the Sunda Strait using the South Equatorial Current. Um, okay. There's two. So of them. you can't come back that route. No, you're going against a what I yeah. presume is a very strong current. So uh, the return journey was impossible on this route. And so ships were required to sail north of the equator in order to reach the Maldives. So you have to like get up and over. And so insul Indian sailors were probably the only mariners, possibly with the Maldivians, who took this route, as shown by Portuguese texts from the 16th century. So, huh. um, and something that you had mentioned about... Um, how how far Madagascar is from the coast of Africa and like yeah. if people would be getting there easily. So in this chapter, I also read, um, so Madagascar is about 250 miles away from the coast of Africa, which isn't far. All no, things not, considered, not, it is yeah, not exactly. far, especially when it is like, like popping in terms of biodiversity and resources along the <laughs> coast. Like it's 
But the space, so that that sort of marine corridor between yes. uh, Madagascar and the eastern coast of Africa, Mainland. yeah, okay, um, has very bad weather. So okay. it can be very dangerous. So getting from one to the other can be very dangerous. And so um, it you, you have to know what you're doing. You, basically, you, you have to know what you're doing, but also there are things beyond your control. Um, it's because it it gets, so I, I read that it it gets quite stormy and so it can be very unpredictable. So the idea that maybe people got there accidentally shipwreck. Sure. And yeah. And that they just sort of like flung themselves at it perhaps to be like, I'm going to get there, but it's not something that you would necessarily have like a really easy, like back and forth relationship. You can't just sort of doggy paddle over. No. So if you're confused, scrub back to the beginning of the section with a map and then you can mm. you can come with us on this journey. But I thought that was that was very interesting because, it is. you know, you look if you look like if you look at a map and you're just like, that is so far away. Like, that's absurd. How did Austronesian populations get there? But then if you actually like look at how the currents work and how the like yeah. monsoon system works. I need a works, map with currents it's, marked. It, mm-hmm. It's it does it's not that it makes it easier, but it makes it make a lot more sense. It's just like, oh, mm-hmm. you would end up there. Like that is a place that <laughs> if you are trying to corner a market or break into a market or or just have like exercise like more kind of agency in a market, um, it would make sense that you would head over there because it's a place you can get to. So go grab your map. We're gonna grab an ad. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our T Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and T Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. Okay, we had our ad. I have a map. I'm going to come back to the map because we're still recording. At the top of this episode, we discussed briefly the history of the Kingdom of Imerina, the consolidated kingdom that preceded French colonization. So let's return to that period, specifically at the start of the 19th century CE, when Imerina was making its conquest of surrounding areas. Zoe Crossland published an article in the journal Antiquity, entitled Time and the Ancestors, colon, Landscape Survey in the Andrance region of Madagascar, about what the archaeological record tells us about this period and the upheaval caused by marina conquest. This, this article contains many Malagasy words. I'm going to do my best. Fortunately, we have Glenn's pronunciation guide to help us out. And fortunately, uh, it mostly sounds like it, like it looks. 
So that's good for me. Which Quote, could be which could be connected to the fact that like a writing system was instituted like was more still, or less yeah. by the British, like because it had been like an oral tradition. For a yeah, long time. an effort to just sort of make it simple for people who are used to reading English. Yeah. Huh. Huh. Quote, historians have dated the conquest of Andrance to between 1808 and 1809. Unfortunately for archaeologists, when the marina conquered the Andrance Fangicana, people in the region appear to have continued to use locally made and designed ceramics rather than importing vessels or manufacturing techniques from Imarina. How inconsiderate. While the ceramic vessels used in Andrance do change over the course of the 19th century, they remain similar to other vessels found in the region and distinct from those used in central Imarina. There are no hints from the portable material culture used in Andrance at the beginning of the 19th century that the marina had taken over the area. This suggests a degree of continuity in the local population after the conquest. If there were marina colonists living in the region, their numbers were probably small, at least in the early years after takeover, and they appear to have been incorporated within the local economic and political structures maintained since before the conquest. This is consistent with marina accounts of the use of the Menakele fiefdom system in Andrance, maintaining local rulers in place. So you do you, but I assume send, you know, products and tribute or whatever People. to the- Oh, no. Okay. That's unfortunate. The stylistic qualities of ceramics found during survey can provide little information on the marina conquest, at least at the current state of research. Although the ceramics provide little indication of the conquest, there is evidence for changing practices in the region by the 19th century. These include changes in the placement of standing stones, trees, and the manner of construction of villages. There was also a sharp fall in the number of inhabited ditched villages as in the villages had ditches around them, not that they were left. <laughs> like people ditched them. <laughs> well, I, there was a sharp increase in. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Over the course of the 19th century, from which may be inferred some form of possibly violent disruption in the ways of life of people in the area. Hence the ditching. It is this fall in the number of occupied villages that is the focus of this paper. While in the second half of the 18th century, there were probably around 87 inhabited ditched villages in the survey region, this dropped precipitously to only 39 for the entire course of the 19th century. A few of the 19th century ditched villages had ditched extensions added onto them, probably at this time, but the small size of most ditched villages suggests that it was unlikely that people from the abandoned villages moved into those that remained occupied. Up until the mid-18th century, the population had grown continuously in the Andrance, at least from the 16th century and possibly earlier. While there is evidence for disease and famine having a deadly effect on communities in Madagascar in the 19th century, there were other factors, directly relating to the control of the region by the marina, that probably led to the fall in the numbers of people living in the Andrance region. The oral traditions from Imarina record that King Aedrianampoininarina demanded slaves and captives from the Andrance area after its incorporation into the Marina Fangicana. The steep drop in the number of occupied villages may have been, at least in part, due to these demands made on the subjugated province. Since at least the 18th century, there had been battles between Mpanjaka in the two regions over the control of the lucrative trade in human beings. Indeed, one of the reasons given for the aggressive action by Imarina against Andrance was control over the movement of people who had been enslaved. 
Larson argues that Andrance was one of the largest sources of slaves for the marina in the 18th century. Some of the villages that had been abandoned by the 19th century may have been emptied as a result of these depredations during the previous century, as well as the continued demand for slaves in the 19th century. Others may have been abandoned by people at the time of the conquest. The oral traditions record that certain Mpanjaka in the area fled to the west and south after the marina took over. The Andrance region was also subject to increasingly fierce attacks from the Betsiriri region to the west after the marina conquest, some possibly sponsored by the deposed local Mpanjaka. These raids from the west seized people and animals from villages in large numbers and increased in intensity over the course of the 19th century. By 1897, when the French took over the area, they found, quote, no trace of villages, end quote, in the area. Indeed, we found little archaeological evidence of late 19th century occupation of villages during survey. Accounts of the fiefs, or menakeli, put in place by the marina also indicate that often the demands made on subjects proved too harsh and could lead to people fleeing the menakeli for areas that were not yet under marina domination. Particularly in areas such as Andrance, located on the frontier of the Fangicana, this must be taken into account as a possible reason for the fall in the number of occupied villages. For people to abandon their ancestral land indicates that conditions were indeed difficult in the Andrance region after Marina takeover. In abandoning this land, they were leaving behind not only the land where their houses and rice paddies were located, but also the land where their ancestral tombs were located, where they should be buried, and from which was drawn so much of their social status and identity. The strong ties to ancestral land that have been documented for 19th and 20th century in Marina may not have been so inflexible in earlier periods and in more peripheral areas such as Andrance. However, from the 6th to late 18th centuries in Andrance, the archaeology indicates a large degree of continuity in the local areas where people lived, suggesting that people were indeed tied in some form to the land where their tombs were located. The desertion of so many villages indicates that something took place to disrupt the stability and security of the Andrance Fangicana, causing many people to leave, to die, or to be taken from the area. Although there are many reasons, as outlined above, for how this abandonment may have taken place, it is probable that the conditions that led to these villages being left derived from the effects of the conquest by the marina. When the 19th century communities are placed into a landscape context that incorporates the world of the dead as well as the living, a world spanning the generations of people and ancestors before the marina arrived, a consistent and well-thought-out logic becomes apparent in terms of which villages were allowed to survive. Wow. Yeah, and so really interesting. Um, the article, so she's uploaded the article to ResearchGate, so anybody can read it. Um, um, and Yay. so the rest of the article goes into looking at the landscape and sort of like taking a look at sort of the spatial, the sort of like spatial analysis of. But taking into account these, these burial. Yeah. Areas. Including like, okay. including the dead in, in, in the population. population. That's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I also. What I a mean, cool approach. Yeah. And like, this is like kind of, uh, kind of a, kind of a bummer of a story to choose from like well all yeah, of like of course Malagasy history but I thought that this was really um like really fascinating and and something that is a 
um, we haven't done a lot of work with like survey stuff in our show. No. Because uh, it's something that neither of us really do. But I thought that true. this was a really good example of um, using an archaeological method to to kind of poke around at at questions around a huge people go a huge period of upheaval and also thinking about like this is happening like this is this is sort of these tensions these sort of like internal and like interpolity tensions and um things that are like much stronger than tensions like when you have like (laughs) popular when you have like villages being emptied of people either because they're they're refugees or they've been enslaved like that's the word depredations was used yes um so you have you have this happening and then you also have external like you have exogenous forces forces coming with the british and the french and also the the dutch and the portuguese and the germans Everybody. uh but you have so the everybody. english you have the english and the french trying to get a foothold in in this space and throwing support wink behind <laughs> um some polities over others and you can see how it's like you can see how settler states, like how settler colonial states and extractive colonial states um, use existing tensions as a wedge, like into societies and economies mm-hmm. and things. And mm-hmm. so I'm not saying it's their fault. And I'm not saying that sort of like no, everything was visible a, in a, history. And so you see that in you see that around the world in in situations and throughout history of where you you have somebody who's like oh well this is this seems unstable this seems untenable this seems like they're going through a period of this upheaval. to my advantage yeah um it's like perhaps it's like something maybe in decline or something else is on the rise so you can go in and be like well it's collapsing anyway i'm just going to pop Yoink. one in here and let me offer my bit. support wink but well, i thought that um yeah, I thought this was this was really interesting. It was. Thanks. Well, last up. Great. I know it sounded like <laughs> I was ending it, but last up on on things that I find very interesting and like compelling to share with all of us. I've got one more morsel of recent scholarship, um, which is also on ResearchGate and also um, is the work of Christina Douglas. Gosh. Do we owe her royalties for this episode or something? Well, no, she did. She did put this up on ResearchGate, but um, fair point. But thank you for doing that. Really cool. Also, just saying. Well, Um, Christina, if you listen to this, she seems very busy. Also, so oh well. (laughs) You know what? Uh, You keep doing your work. Thank you for your work. Thank you for your service. So, um, in an article entitled "Toward a Just and Inclusive Environmental Archaeology of Southwest Madagascar." Douglas and her co-authors describe the ethos and objectives of the Morambe archaeological project. So the abstract reads as follows. Quote, in this paper, we advocate a collaborative approach to investigating past human environment and interactions in Southwest Madagascar. We do so by critically reflecting as a team on the development of the Morambe archaeological project initiated in 2011 as a collaboration between an American archaeologist and the Viso communities of the Belandriake Marine Protected Area. 
Our objectives are to assess our trajectory in building collaborative partnerships with diverse local, indigenous, and descendant communities to provide concrete suggestions for the development of new collaborative projects in environmental archaeology. Through our Madagascar case study, we argue that contemporary environmental and economic challenges create an urgency to articulate and practice an inclusive environmental archaeology, and we propose that environmental archaeologists must make particular efforts to include local, indigenous, and descendant communities. Finally, we assert that full collaboration involves equal power sharing and mutual knowledge exchange and suggest an approach for critical self-evaluation and collaborative projects, end quotes. So... Um, I'm just going to, yes, I'm going to excerpt. Yes. <laughs> uh, I'm going to excerpt, excerpt from the conclusions here, uh, which hopefully will get all y'all listening to go read that article. Go. We argue that practicing, listen to this first. We argue that practicing archaeology inclusively on Madagascar is a matter of social and environmental justice made urgent by the many environmental and economic challenges facing the island's diverse communities today. Among many reasons to engage in more integrated and collaborative research, we highlight two in the context of our work. First, the archaeology of Madagascar has been dominated by an interest in environmental questions linked to the island's initial settlement by people, leading to a heavy reliance on eco-facts, being carbon samples, botanical remains, animal bones, soils, etc., for the production of archaeological knowledge. A reliance on eco-facts that are often processed, analyzed, and interpreted in overseas laboratories has created a gulf between living Malagasy and the archaeological investigation of the Malagasy past. In this regard, environmental archaeology must engage in critical self-reflection and find ways to work collaborative with LID communities. Similar issues have been raised regarding ethical treatment and use of human genetic material taken from archaeological and museum contexts. Second, our understanding of past human environment interaction on Madagascar has shaped perceptions of present human environment interactions with consequences for the development of resource use and conservation policies. Although we focus here on Madagascar as a case study, intersections of archaeology and environmental justice in other regions, particularly where the archaeology is dominated by questions related to long-distance human migrations, the settlement of formerly uninhabited regions, ecological change, and faunal extinctions, and where local communities today are politically, socially, and or economically marginalized. So there, there are a lot of sort of social justice reasons for, you know, more inclusive, more collaborative work, but also the number of times on this podcast that we have covered a story where it's like, turns out the people who have lived there for generations and generations were right about this thing that is recorded in their oral history or something. So like there is no way that that archaeologists wouldn't benefit really from from well, this kind of I mean, collaborative work. The only work. thing that the like the art the capital A archaeologist stands to lose here is sole claim to archaeological knowledge and ownership of archaeological knowledge. Yeah, and so which those people are jerks? Too, well, yeah, but that doesn't I'm going to say it. Yeah. But like that, it's, it's a, it's, it's a power thing. Um, I know. And so that's, um, so I think that I humbly request that if you are, uh, we have a lot of people who listen to the show who do archaeological research, who like work in the field or who are, 
who want to someday work in the field, I really recommend that you read this article uh, because it is it is it is very it's very compelling and it's very honest um, and it's very self conscious in the way that like it understands what they are doing and it's a reflection on several years of a project and what changes they put in place and what they what changes they hope to put in place in the future. And I think that it's a really great way to start a conversation, whether it's a conversation with yeah. your your uh, with your co-PIs or with your PI, if you are lucky enough to have that kind of relationship with your PI. <laughs> um, or if or you yourself. are somebody who, yeah, who is thinking about doing research like this, I really think that this is something that you should think about doing uh, because um, it has been done. Uh, other people do it, but yes. the fact that um, Douglas and her team um, are are capturing that and are publishing that, I think, is um, immensely valuable. And it's you know, you love to see it. You unironically love to see it. I agree. May I include a book club recommendation on this topic? Yes. So this is sort of more linked to specifically American archaeology and um, indigenous communities in the Americas. But in, in terms of general themes and if you are thinking about these issues, the author Stephen Silliman, S-I-L-L-I-M-A-N, wrote a book called Collaborating at the Trowel's Edge. And it's a book that I uh, was assigned for the archaeological ethics course that I took um, in the early years of my graduate career. So it's sort of uh, treat it maybe as a foundational text because I don't think it was written. I think it's written in the past decade, but maybe it's not the most current in terms of these practices. So maybe consider that sort of a starting point and then um, jumping off of this article from Christina Douglas and her team, just sort of add that to your to your uh, reading list if you're interested in those issues and want to think more about that. Yeah. And also when I say that Christina Douglas seems very busy, um, I've seen her name come up on a couple panels that have, that have happened lately about talking about, uh, about, um, you know, she was on one, you can cut all this out, but she was on something recently with Peter Nelson, who I went to school with. Um, and it was about like futures and I think she was on one with Peter. And then I think she was on one about like futures for like black archaeology. And so she was talking about sort of um, like participatory and like uh, okay. like decolonizing like approaches. Or it sounds like this is a, a big part of her scholarship in general. Yeah, so, no, so she'd like, be a person she's to, very to look into. In, like, praxis and, mm-hmm. and sort of like, um, yeah, no, great. Um, but Anna, mm-hmm. to conclude... Yes. Mm-hmm. up top somewhere in the middle somewhere around there sometime in the past hour um somebody mentioned man-sized lemurs i did i did and so listeners if you were thinking there are far too many humans in this episode and not nearly enough lemurs great news uh jumping off of this we're going to be recording a deep cuts episode which is one of our patreon exclusive episodes that we record well we try to do it on a monthly basis sometimes you know the best laid plans of podcasters and all that but this deep cuts episode is going to be about the lemurs of madagascar and and a bit of primatology for which may i say i am deeply underqualified but i'm going to put together a fun script about lemurs so if you're interested in that aspect of madagascar's sort of evolutionary history and biodiversity tune into deep cuts and uh, that's gonna that's gonna do it for this episode. Yeah. So okay. as always, 
You can find us over on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or wherever else you like to listen to your podcasts. And if you prefer to do stuff with your eyes, you can find us on social media. On Facebook, we are The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we are at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. And look, if you listen to our episode on King Arthur and you need to see pictures from my medieval castle themed bat mitzvah, they're over on our Instagram. So you're welcome, everyone. Baby Anna. Um, it was very angular at that stage yeah, of my development. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you find, awkward. So you can find all of that, plus merch, plus our syllabus for educators, our back catalog, and even more. Um, all of that is at our website, thedirtpod.com. Thank you, everybody. We love you. Goodbye. Bye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.